Welcome to The Good, The Bad and The Dirty, The Secret Psychology of Persuasion. My name is Natalie Nahai and I'm the web psychologist. I help businesses psychologically optimize their online engagement by applying scientific rigor to their design process. In The Good, The Bad and The Dirty, I'll be sharing strategies and tools with you that you can use to enhance your online presence. Listen weekly as I share new sites, news in online persuasion and the occasional guest star to help you convert more customers online. Make sure you subscribe for free updates at thewebpsychologist.com and get all the resources you mention in the show on the show notes page at thewebpsychologist.com forward slash show hyphen notes. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Good, The Bad and The Dirty. This week our guest is Joe Leach, a user experience director who specialises in designing every aspect of the user experience, from initial research to developing a robust and measurable online strategy, to producing beautiful, easy-to-use wireframes and website information architectures. Joe's got an MSc in human-computer interaction as well as 10 years' experience working in digital strategy and UX in the UK and across Europe and North America, Asia and Africa. He's worked with some fantastic clients such as Marriott, Disney, Late Rooms, which is one of my personal favourites, The Train Line, Peugeot, Virgin and eBay. And he recently uh, released a downloadable book called Psychology for Designers, which explores how to improve design with psychology. And it's actually a suite of uh, a group of books, which you should definitely check out. And we'll put the link in the show notes page. Joe, thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's a pleasure to have you as our guest. Yeah, great to be here. (laughs) So you recently went to Shanghai, is that right? That's right. Yeah. So I do, um, I probably do about half the work I seem to do at the moment. I do internationally. So Mm. I do a lot of work in all over the world, really. I was in Shanghai and I was also in Tokyo last week too. Oh, wow. So what were you up to out there? That was user research. So that was user research for Marriott International Hotel Group. So that was just understanding how people book hotel rooms in, uh, in Asia. And in terms of methodology, I'm just going to, this is sort of more for my personal interest than anything else, with cultural differences. What kind of methodology do you employ for that kind of research? Um, so the way we work it is we work with like a local, um, effectively lo- local UX agency. So we partner up with those guys and we run a pretty standard usability test, to be honest, like a user research study. So we'll do an hour watching somebody use the Marriott website, maybe a competitor or two, um, either on their desktop tablet or or smartphone and we just basically watch and ask questions to understand how they book um hotel rooms what they what information they need what kind of you know support they need in doing that and then basically also understanding what the competitors do as well and how marriott and you know sort of stand up to the to the local competition Mm, fascinating yeah (laughs) well thanks for that early dalliance um okay so i was going to ask as this is a podcast around the psychology of persuasion i'd love to start with um kind of digging in a bit deeper about what you think the role of UX is in creating persuasive websites? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. You, you've, <laughs> um, and, and one that's quite, I suppose, quite dear to me as well. So I, yeah. I mean, I work not only for people like Marriott, but I work with another company called Appliances Online, you might have heard of up mm. in the north of England, who sell white goods online. I, I work with, in a lot of e-commerce companies, primarily, I suppose. Um, and so I, um, I always resist the term persuasion. Um, for a couple of reasons, mostly because mm. I think it, it, it does suggest an element of, I suppose, nefarious, um, <laughs> uh, I suppose, uh, and it doesn't really suggest the, the right way, the right motivation behind why we should be encouraging to people to buy stuff. And I, I prefer mm. the word encouragement because 
I'd much rather be the kind of the person at the sideline saying, yeah, come on, you can do it, rather than the, you know, the slightly seedy, persuasive person that's almost oh, feeling no. like they're tricking you into doing it. And that, that doesn't suggest that perhaps you're that way, Natalie, at all. But I'm sitting here going, persuasion, mm, maybe I should change I, I my move brand. away from quite strongly when I, when I talk about this stuff. And we would probably mm. use the same techniques and approaches, but I don't like the term okay. because of what it, its connotations and its suggestions. Mm. No, well, that's absolutely fair enough. I think it's it's definitely a great area. I mean, it, it's one of those things where it does have that element of someone else creating something that you're going to find perhaps more seductive and that element of, um, I don't know about underhandedness, because like, I, I sort of see the difference between persuasion and manipulation, but I do agree it is a It's, it's a, a very tricky, fine line. It's, it is, and and even absolutely. using the word seductive is an interesting one as well, because seductive suggests... Again, a similar sort of changing of what you would like to do into something that we would well, like you to do. I don't know about that, you know. I was having this discussion with um, with Arden Lee, who actually she's an interesting person to talk to. She's a, a female pickup artist and basically teaches people in the art of seduction. And I think seduction can either be done nefariously or actually sometimes it's quite nice to be seduced. Um, I don't know. I, I think know, there's a willingness I mean, I think there. you're right. But I think, it, you know, we, I, the reason I... I because I've been accused of being on both sides of that as well. So I've been mm. accused of, of using my skills in UX to, you know, to effectively sell people stuff they don't want. Mm. And, you know, e- equally, I'm, I'm kind of very conscious that I don't want to get into that world. And because and yeah. I mean, my career started sort of, what, 10 years ago. And I, one of my first jobs was for a major high street bank. And it, this was at the time of um, PPI, you know, personal protection mm. insurance. And so with my background in psychology, I was kind of, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, people quite like the idea of working with me initially on those sorts of products because effectively it was selling a product that number one wasn't very good. Um, and, you know, number two was, uh, you know, effectively back in those days, the, the payment protection insurance made the organization more money than the loan or the credit card wow. that it was associated with. Yeah. And so there was an incredible business drive to sell more of these mm. things. And that payment protection insurance is a, is a, is a, is a, in a, a way of, you know, effectively limiting, limiting your exposure if something goes wrong with your loan, you know, so if you're, if you get sick or, you know, you, you lose your job, you're made redundant, something goes wrong in your personal life, mm. this insurance will pick up the tab for this loan. So it's a very, very emotive subject, you know, yes, effectively. And, and I found myself in the position where, you know, one of the key performance indicators for this site was to sell this stuff. And I found it incredibly difficult because I could have really, I mean, I could have really gone to town on it because, mm. you know, when you're applying for insurance, we ask you questions like, you know, are you married? How many children do you have? Where do you live? And, and it's really simple to be able to, you know, repurpose, say, some of that data to say things like, oh, you know, we've got the person's name. Hey, John, yeah. wouldn't it be awful if you're, you lost your job and then your wife and two kids were destitute? You oh, should gosh. buy payment and yeah. insurance. And, <laughs> and this, this for me, this was my first kind of, you know, proper real UX job. And it, it scared me the potential of what is possible with the mm. skills that we guys we've got. You know, if you've got a bit of psychology background, you know what buttons to push, mm. and you know you've got the UX and the ability to kind of design from that. You could be really dangerous if you absolutely. <laughs> and actually, let's let's talk about that because I think that's a really important thing to to kind of to tackle head on. I mean, I, I kind of approach that with the idea of you know if we give. The knowledge like you have in your book or you know I do with the podcast and stuff like this and, and the book if we give people the knowledge about how psychology can be used to, to persuade then at least we can be more aware of the kind of techniques that are being used and then create more choice but even then we're, we're still talking to people who are already interested in that field which is a very small proportion of the population and and how, how do you go about kind of 
with the work that you do creating um, a discussion around ethics, I think is, is the word I'm looking for, actually. Ethical use of persuasion, oh, for, for your case, encouragement, yeah, exactly. in my case, persuasion, yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, as part of the book and as part of what I've done generally, I've published a kind of an ethical code of conduct, mm. sort of four, rule, four rules that I stick to. And it, I think it's really important for me that I stick to, and it's important for me to put it out there, number one, but also important for me to kind of keep back and referencing it. Um, and effectively, what um, really what it is, is basically, you know, don't lie, don't cheat, don't trick, um, don't do anything that is in some way encouraging somebody to do something they wouldn't otherwise do. Yeah. And that for me is really important and I think it you know I think it's fine to use these skills to kind of make your you more attractive than a competitor for you to sort of for your product to look more you know more look better and appear better and seem better than the competitor's product but I don't ever want it to be in a position where I'm kind of you know selling an inferior product for a higher price to somebody who I'm effectively trying to coerce into buying it and I'm you know pretty strict in who I work with and the work that I'll do because of that as well. And I've kind of, you know, and that's because of my experience of just being on the, being put in a very, very difficult ethical mm. position, you know. Early on. One, early on in my career. That's fascinating. Can you send me the link for that? Because I'd love to share it with everyone. Yeah, I course. think that's a really wonderful way to approach it because you're right, it's all such a grey area. And I think the, the thing that I always sort of go back to is, is what Robin Dreek said. He was the, the head of the behavioral analysis unit at the FBI. And if you've listened to this podcast, you'll know that I reference him quite a bit. But he said that the difference between persuasion and manipulation is intent. And the idea that if you have a positive intent for your customer, in which you both mutually benefit, then that's that's a, a good place to start. And that's, that's when you're doing stuff with integrity. And I think that's also a lovely kind of positive affirmation to hold. But yeah, tricky. Okay, cool. It really is. It mm. really, really is. And I think that's, and I think it's a real challenge and we have to be really careful. And I mean, yeah. have, you, have you come across the work that Harry Brignall does in the dark, in terms of dark patterns? I have read a bit about dark patterns. It's pretty scary Edgecroft stuff, I think, isn't it? It is. And he, he yeah. you know, he's, his the depth that he kind of goes to in explaining why these things come up, come about is because of the kind of the internal culture that com- many companies have where they put effectively making a making a buck more important than you know doing the right thing and it it can be really difficult if you're within a you know within an organization that has a you know a real need to sell stuff at high you know high volume to keep it mm. going and the business is focused on doing that rather than doing the right thing you know you are going to be pressured as a designer to effectively you know use your use your skills in a way that you may not be particularly comfortable with really Mm. I think with that because it is such a slippery slope and especially with the recent research that's shown that people who are creative are better at lying and fabricating which (laughs) yeah and actually our ability to self-dupe or to kind of walk start walking down a path that we're not entirely sure how it is to begin with and then getting to a point where suddenly you look up and your company's taking you somewhere that you kind of incrementally agreed to without realising quite what you're getting into. And I think the idea that you have of having four ethical rules of conduct that you can physically revisit and ask at every step of the way, is this what actually I would do if this is in my personal life or this is a friend? Or I think that's a wonderful way to kind of try and keep that in check so you don't end up one day waking up and realising that you're somewhere that you really don't want to be. Absolutely. And we know from psychology, you know, the famous prisoner and guard experiment mm. where, do you know that one where they got... They got um, uh, you know, a set of respondents from a university, some university yeah. students, half of <laughs> whom pretended to be guards, half of whom were told they had the role of a prisoner. Mm. And they 
they were given, you know, the, the guards were given um, the ability to give an electric shock. Actually, the people they were giving electric shock to were actors. It was fake. But they were told by their superiors to give electric shocks if they, they believed these people were not telling the truth or lying. And it was quite a, a horrific experiment and it was quite traumatising for these people because they, in fact, were giving quite horrible electric shocks to, they, they thought, to these actors because they were being told to by the authority figures around them. Um, mm. And it was really quite an interesting experiment to show how quick and easy it is for us to fall from, you know, feeling like we have a great, uh, feeling like we're very ethical and, you know, how easy it is for us to fall from that and to start, you know, end up doing, being quite horrible because basically we're told to do it, which is yeah. quite scary. Yeah, I think that was the Zimbardo Stanford prison experiment and the other one was the Milgram. That's but, the one. But yeah, absolutely fascinating. And you, you see this happen and play out again and again across different sectors. Um, it's, yeah, it's quite breathtakingly frightening, actually. Um, okay, so I'm sort of, I'm getting in depth into this question, this conversation, I've not even covered any of my questions yet, but uh, let's, let's move back. I want to talk a little bit about your book, which is really interesting. So the psychology for designers, I wanted to ask you what inspired you to write it and what are some of the key themes within the book? Um, so what inspired me to write it? I mean, my background is I, I studied neuroscience back at university mm. many years ago um and then you know then I did I got my master's in human communication and computing and I so psychology has always been part of my of my professional life but my mum was a psychologist as well and so growing up with a mum mother who's a psychologist is a you know you learn an awful lot about psychology but you know there's also the points where you worry a little bit are you subject to this psychology's yeah. the psychologist experiment <laughs> um not that my mum ever did that, but the way I kind of explore the book, and I write the book from a kind of very personal point of view, where I sort of talk about my my um, my motivations for, the, for understanding psychology in the first place, which was mm. just, you know, wanting to understand really how people think and tick. And then moving into the, uh, also the book, I talk about the various different types of psychology as well, because it can be quite daunting from the outside to understand, well, what's you know, the difference between cognitive psychology social psychology, developmental psychology, the whole behavioral economics mm. stuff that started in the last 10 years. So I go into a, a, a bit about how and what the different types of psychology are. Um, and I do that in the form of an argument between me and my mother, which is <laughs> probably brilliant. quite Freudian in its, its very nature. But it's, my mum comes from a social psychologist's world um, and I come from a cognitive psychologist's world. So we've always clashed about our differences in terms of what theories we believe to be correct or most important so mm. again this book's quite a personal way of me putting my um my view as to what psychology is and how we should use it but then I also go into um a fair amount of detail about how to uncover psychology because there are a great many great books out there like including yours where you know you help give people the psychology that's going to be useful for them in their job but um I kind of approach it slightly differently in that there are many d design situations that um, I encounter um, in my job where mm. the psychology isn't necessarily readily available for me to solve that problem. So I kind of give a, a guide as to how to go out and find the psychology you need to solve a particular design problem. Mm, wonderful. Within the book as well. Mm. That sounds really fantastic. <laughs> so why do you think yeah. it's important to understand the psychology behind good design? Because uh, I think... It, and I think it effectively makes you a better designer. I don't, mm. I wouldn't necessarily say it make, can make, always make your designs better. I think, you know, a, a good designer will always choose good designs. I think psychology can help you know, improve their designs a little bit. But the thing I found, the thing I use psychology most for is effectively a tool for advocacy in design. So, um, you know, being able to 
um, put together a design with the psychological psychological theory behind it, but then being able to use that theory to advocate to the the client or mm. the team or whoever that this design is going to be successful. And almost that psychology will give you a strong bedrock in terms of design, but it'll also give you the way to ensure that the the right design finally gets built. Because I think one of the big frustrations that you know we all have in in the in the web design world is that especially if you work in client services, is that the, the work you may initially design is not actually often the work that gets finally built mm. and released in the world. And yeah. so I wanted to kind of give people the tools to be able to advocate design with psychology. I think that's wonderful. And it's true because oftentimes when you work with clients, you'll, you'll find that the designer has got some really good ideas and their teams come up with something fantastic based on their experience and their insights of what works, especially if they've got, you know, conversion rate expert on the team. And then it's someone higher up who goes, oh, well, can we just change this color to this? And it's just kind of this fanciful changing of stuff based on absolutely no knowledge whatsoever and just personal whim. Um, and it becomes quite difficult for the designers because often they're not the ones who are the ones making the final decision. Um, yeah. Yeah, exactly right. What's your favourite example of a website that uses sort of kind of psychological elements in their in their design to create fantastic and sort of emotionally engaging experiences? <laughs> <laughs> Do you well, have a couple up your sleeve? That's a good question because <laughs> I think I, I think it. it Everybody does it differently, and I think it differs from sector to sector. Yeah. So one of the big things that um, um, I believe in is using, is using the ability, is using emotion to sell to mm. people. So using and conveying emotion through design um, to be able to effectively showcase your product really well. Um, I mean, the classic outstanding one in that regard is Apple. Apple mm. don't ever talk about the features of a design. They talk about how that well, features of a product, they talk about how that product will make you feel. And that... I think is an incredibly strong psychological motivator is to latch on and, and to associate your product with emotion. And Apple do that brilliantly well. Um, I mean, I've been working with, um, I mean, Marit's a good example of a company that I do. I mean, a hotel room is, um, is a different kind of, it's sold in different ways from different people. And I've worked with people like late rooms who sell hotel rooms to people like Marit who sell hotel rooms. And they may be selling what in essence is the same product, but they sell it in very different ways. So mm-hmm. late rooms sell their stuff in terms of you know pile it high sell it cheap so the design of their website consequently um is i think works very well from a psychological point of view because it appears and i don't mean this in any way as a negative thing but it appears cheap and that's good because that gives you the illusion and the impression of value so Mm. a good example of this is um is um do you know a website called ling's cars it's quite famous in the design breaking every (laughs) single design rule that's out there you know um and it sells sells motor cars or, or financing for motor cars. Another good example is um, another client of ours as well is Money Saving Expert. You know Martin oh, yeah. Lewis's website. Yeah, he's he's the same. You know he and he, he does it very well as, as does Ling. I think Ling does it more by accident through the design, but Martin Lewis certainly does it through design. His website appears cheap, um, and that is a deliberate ploy on his part because he, you know if his website started to look slick and professional and very well designed, if it started looking like Apple.com, people would start to think well you know it's clear he can obviously afford a very expensive designer here how you know how's he making his money why does this website look so expensive and Mm. high end when it shouldn't do and i think the hardest design challenges of certainly many graphic designers is to design a site that's cheap you know we're all good at going and copying apple.com for um, a good quality design but actually to give the impression of cheapness of value 
of that kind of stuff is a real challenge. So I think those three that I've just mentioned there are good examples of that in that world. But then equally, you know, people like Marriott and you know, the classics like Mercedes who who do the high end, high quality product stuff. And another one, um, Jaguar, who I worked with a few years ago, you know, really effectively conveying huge amounts of emotion through the photography and the design that's there to sell a product, which if you thought about it, and certainly in terms of like a high end sports car, if you really thought about the you know the, the financial benefits of buying a high-end sports car, you'd never do it. Yeah. So <laughs> it is about selling to the emotional element of of, of of a person to you know appealing to their the emotional side of their psyche. I mean, and again, that puts me on that difficult ethical line with working with people like Jaguar. I mean, do I sell somebody one hundred and fifty thousand pounds sports car or not? You know, hopefully they can afford it. Mm, but mm. you know, I want to be able to basically show that showcase that product in you know to its absolute best. And equally, I wouldn't ever want to you know suggest that Jaguar approach the way things that Ling, Ling's cars do you know because they are <laughs> selling different products in a different way yeah yeah that's a beautiful um sort of balance of three sites for the cheap websites and three sites that are kind of emotionally engaging for the more expensive products I'm going to put those up in the show notes as well what's your um what's the most surprising or perhaps powerful tip that you can give our listeners to help them increase their sales or conversions on their websites huh this, <laughs> this is an e- this is an easy one so um because again, I do a lot of work in e-commerce. Mm. Um, the easiest way, easiest and most successful way of improving any e-commerce website is to make the pictures bigger. Brilliant. It's so basic <laughs> that nobody does it. You know, I I, 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 I lose count of the number of websites I go to when I'm trying to buy something and the picture is tiny. Mm. It's, you know, you buy a product from based mostly on what you, um, you feel about that product. So you, know, you can list all the cognitive benefits, you know, like, all, all the features which you can understand on the kind of cognitive level, but the uh, a massive increase in the size of imagery tugs on those emotional strings. You know, you can see a, like a, a refrigerator is a good example. So if you're buying a refrigerator, most mm. people think you buy a refrigerator in terms of, well, you know, how many shelves has it got? You know, what features has it got? Has it got a cold water thing? You know, maybe how energy efficient is it? That's all complete rubbish. Mm. People buy refrigerators <laughs> because of what they look like. Yeah, totally. You buy a refrigerator for your, you know, your brand new kitchen, you want that refrigerator to look really good. You know, for most, many family houses, the the, the, the kitchen is the centre of the family house. Mm. And often it's the place where you spend a lot, most of your time. So when you're, you're redesigning your kitchen, you want it to feel great. And so when you're selling a, a, a refrigerator online, it's not, the, the bullet points and the price are not going to sell that refrigerator. What's going to sell that refrigerator is fantastic imagery and fantastic video of that particular product and that's the best way to sell anything is to improve improve the quality of the imagery and the videos will will increase sales not you, you know fiddling around with multivariate <laughs> testing or prices or comments here there and everywhere it is bigger pictures sell more stuff yeah and i think also the other thing staying away from stock images which i can't stand oh absolutely it's <laughs> horrific yeah completely yeah Oh dear. So you also contribute to the UX design section of one of my favorite websites, which is Smashing Magazine. And I'm interested yes. to know, kind of as an insider, what do you think is the key to their success? <laughs> they, <laughs> well, um, yeah, Vitaly, who's the, the editor-in-chief, is, if you've ever met him, he is, a, he is just person, he's just he's just a big, massive personality when you see him. He's got so much wonderful enthusiasm for for the work that is done in digital design right now. And I think he, the way he approaches um, the authors he asks and the articles he publishes come from the heart, really. And he really cares about um, good quality work that's out there. So 
him, with him, it's about passion. And that kind of does come through, I think, in, to a certain extent on Smashing Magazine. But I mean, there's, there's the, the quality of the stuff they do. I mean, they, they publish also publish quite a lot of stuff as well. So mm. they try and push stuff through basically from people who are maybe not the biggest name in, in, in design, but people who are doing the job day to day and have a passion for that job are the authors they tend to go after rather than the kind of the well-known designers out there who you may see on other sites. So I think mm. it's it's really about passion and choosing people who do the job day to day. It seems to work very well for those guys. Hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What do you think it is that makes their blog so influential? <laughs> and the way that they use their social channels? Well, I mean, if you've ever, if you if they publish an awful lot, I think the, the, the way that they write, um, they're very good at writing um, titles for articles as well, which is a kind mm. of classic um, <laughs> becoming a classic technique these days so you know they've I mean they started to move away from it when they first started they were sort of big proponents of the 10 10 tips for this you know 100 ways to make this better that kind of stuff which is very enticing if you're a you know if you read that particular article on Twitter so they are very very good at writing article headlines that are you know are um going to trigger persuasive yeah you're going to trigger people things like I want to read that so I think they do that very very well and you know they have a strong you know social media presence they've got a number of twitter feeds that are out there now but they are about i suppose pushing stuff to the right people at the right time with the right headlines is really how they do they do stuff well i think mm. cool I, I wanted to ask you a little bit moving from the the headline side of things into how we're consuming information online um what are some of the trends that you've noticed in terms of how we're consuming information online, either through e-commerce sites, you mentioned already the the fact that if we have larger, more high-resolution, beautiful images, that that you know that's something that we enjoy consuming, and that um, mm-hmm. creates an experience in which we then want to buy more. So, what are some of the ways in which we're we're starting to change the way that we that we get our info? Um, I think the biggest one I've seen trend recently is, is reviews. So it's reviews by, you know, people who've either bought the product before or from other websites. And mm. reviews are big in, in all kind of elements of e-commerce this, these days. But what's interesting about, about reviews is everybody assumes reviews are about um, telling you what's good and what's bad about a product. So the classic thing I see in user research and probably about 50 percent of my job is, is user research is watching people use websites day to day. So. I, I see a lot of people reading reviews and the classic way they do it is they skim the first couple, then they go directly to the negative reviews yeah. to read what's really bad about the review. And effectively what's going on at this point is they're checking to see if the person writing the review is a person like them. So if it's a negative review, if they agree with the reasoning behind that negative review, then they'll dismiss that product out of hand. So, you know, if they say things like, I had a classic one with hotel rooms recently where somebody wrote reviews saying this the hotel room is terrible. They didn't empty the water in the kettle from the previous guest. <laughs> one star. Now, well, I, I used to saw that news testing and a couple of people went, my God, that's awful. That's really awful. I don't like the thought of that at all. And other people were like, well, that's just water. What does that even matter? That's <laughs> ridiculous. It's just water. And so that one star review, although it was a one star review, had different effects on different people. How intriguing. So it was uh, what... Ed, I noticed that, that people try and attempt to do when they look at online reviews is they look for, you know, effectively, are these reviewers people like me? Mm. Which is why I'd never recommend sites like Jaguar or um, any kind of high insights to include reviews because people like Jaguar owners are quite private people who don't want to necessarily be known for, you know, driving a Jaguar. It's not necessarily an ostentatious car. I mean, it, it's a beautiful car. It's not ostentatious like a Ferrari or a Lamborghini, mm. but 
so you know sort of showing off or, or sharing your experiences to Jaguar is something that would never happen in terms of Jaguar so for them to include product reviews would seem like a really odd thing to do yeah but interesting the other important thing about product reviews is people use product reviews to find more information about a product so often they're a great supplement to that often that cluster information that a e-commerce retailer will provide that you know in a review you can find a gem of a piece of information about you know how easy is it to fit this refrigerator how you know is this is this thing going to be compatible with my iPhone often that stuff isn't written very well by the vendor and can be taken up and used in reviews and you know, everywhere we see reviews now, there's two ways that people are doing it. They're assessing quality of the product, but they're also using reviews to understand missing product information as well. Actually, that's so true. I was looking for, I've got this beautiful little um, bathroom and um, the loose seats keep getting wonky and it's really, really irritating. So I went onto the website. I was like, right, I've had enough. I'm going to go on the website. I'm going to go buy a new beautiful loose seat. Um, not that that's a particularly exciting product to buy. And what was really funny was they'd upgraded or they'd redesigned the old design of the loose seat. And it's sort of a very Victorian, very gorgeous looking kind of black and white sort of thing. And, uh, and what was really interesting, one person had written a review that said, um, this stopped the, the loose seat from swinging, the old one. So basically exactly the same problem that I'd had. And you could see from the design that they'd fixed it. But of course, they're not going to write that in the actual um, item description yeah. on why they've changed yeah. the design. And I was like, yes, someone else has had exactly the same problem as me. I'm going to buy it. And I bought two instantly. But you're exactly right. That kind of that supplementing, you know, the information that... that people decide that they want to tell you that may not be the information that you actually need to make that purchase decision um <laughs> sorry that's probably a really random example to give that stuff happens all the time it's interesting yeah mm. cool. so i wanted to, to end before i go into the quick fire round on a question around the growing concern that we seem to have around privacy and how you think this will impact personalization and personalized user experience privacy yeah mm. um there was an interesting, um, um, interesting uh, study I've, I've seen recently, one I talk about quite a lot, actually, in some of the stuff that I do, which is, um, w- was actually, if, if they did this um, study, again, university study, which happened with students, all these studies seem to be in universities involving students, mm. but they effectively did this study where they, um, um, they asked people to complete a questionnaire, and at the start of the questionnaire, they gave them a quite an in-depth and it's quite a personal questionnaire about their, you know, their sex life and very personal things. And they gave them at the start of this questionnaire a very, very in-depth, um, um, introduc- in-depth overview of what security and privacy they were taking into account when they were, um, when they were um, looking after the data for this questionnaire. And then in another version of the questionnaire, they didn't put the same um, warning in. Mm. And actually, they found that people were less honest in the, um, the questionnaire where they were talking a lot about security and uh, mm. it's called the, the privacy salience effect and effectively what it what it is and i see this in user research as well is you know the big the large verisign or the you know your your secure your details of secure messaging that's on a lot of e-commerce sites mm. well they can actually have the opposite effect is if you talk too much about security conversely you worry people about security because you're know, bringing you it into things, their minds yeah exactly mm. you'll say you know, your details are safe from hackers. Your people are thinking, oh, gosh, yes, of course, my details can be accessed by hackers here. Maybe I won't <laughs> enter my details here. So actually over, over-emphasizing security can have the opposite effect and discourage people from giving um, 
giving away personal details online. That's such an interesting one to, to look at. I'm going to um, sort of bug you for the link for that afterwards. It was another interesting piece of research. I think there's people in um, the Netherlands who did this on wording for privacy and security, you know, when you sort of give your email. And they found that if you write in the positive, you get a much higher conversion rate. So the negative, like you said, was, yeah. was around hacking. So something like, we don't like hackers, we hate spam, we won't sell your email. So that's all in the negative versus we ensure 100% privacy um, will protect your information. That's kind of in the positive. And they found a marked difference between those two effectively sort of similar um, outcomes, but worded in very, very different ways. Um, Interesting. Cool. All right. I was I could chat with you for ages, but I, I want to dive into our little quick fire round, which is basically five okay. either or questions that you pick an answer for. Does that sound like fun? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. <laughs> All right. So cat or dog? Uh, cat. Marvel or DC? Oh, definitely Marvel. <laughs> good, good. Me too. <laughs> Me too. Um, present or future? Future. Now, being that you're in Bristol, I'm hazarding a guess on this one, but that's a massive generalisation. Beer or cocktails? <laughs> well, I'd say neither. Cider. Cider's what we're yes. all about in West Country, if you're going to say it. You can say that. We'll throw it in for you. Um, and the final one, neuroscience or psychology? Uh, oh, that's a challenging one. Yeah. I've studied both. Gut instinct tells me neuroscience because it's a bit more sciencey than psychology. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much, Joe, for coming oh, thank on. Thank you. I've enjoyed myself. <laughs> me too. And if you're listening and you would like to tweet to Joe or ask him any questions, you can find him at Mr. Joe using the hashtag GoodBadDirty. Joe, is there anything else that you want people to check out um, that you think is, is fun that they should look at? Well, check out that's fun. I suppose I could I could plug. I've got a website called Psychology for Designers, which is where it's like a blog of interesting psychology stuff that I find that's relevant to designers. So if they could look at that, fantastic. Psychologyfordesigners.com is a good place to start. Um, so fun or exciting? That's probably as exciting <laughs> as I get at the moment. That's really <laughs> exciting, especially that we're sort of pitching to lots of designers on here. So um, yes, wonderful. Well, Joe, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been such a pleasure. Oh, thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you liked this episode, make sure you go to my website, thewebpsychologist.com forward slash show hyphen notes to get links to all the resources we mentioned, as well as updates on future shows. Thanks for listening.